Welcome to the Without a Hitch podcast, episode 10. Today we have the second episode in a new podcast series called Notes from a Small House, where the entire universe is crunched down to our home and property, as has been the case for many of us over the last couple of years. These are short vignettes of life in and around a small house full of kids and animals. Perhaps you'll recognise a little of the chaos of your own household in there, or perhaps you'll think, my goodness, I'm glad our story is a more sensible, logical one than what I'm hearing right now. Today we'll be hearing a fair bit on what you try to get kids to say, what kids actually say, and what you say to kids about what they say. Spoiler, they say hilarious and sometimes devious things to each other. Plus a bonus list, thematically related, things kids say to imply they don't like their dinner and certainly won't be eating it. Right, let's get into it. This next story that you're about to hear features a face treatment I had to get, which left me with an extraordinarily angry-looking red face for a few weeks. Every so often I get a photo reminder from that time on my phone, saying, uh, on this day, several months ago, the algorithm just thought you might like to remember that you looked like a beetroot. And I always see that photo and I think, thank you very much. But on with the story. Notes from a Small House Part 2 featuring reverse sibling psychology, photodynamic face-melting therapy, and artificial intelligence muttering to itself in the next room. Notes from a Small House 2 Opposites Day My 10-year-old son Nico has been experimenting with reverse psychology on his 6-year-old sister Ida. Currently, this is mostly deployed to influence the order in which we read our three bedtime books or chapters, a contentious subject which the two of them treat with the gravity of two generals debating control of the nuclear codes. Evening by evening, I alternate which child gets to choose the reading order, but as is his way, Nico considers it as his right to determine the order whether it's his turn or not. I don't want to read Animals of Farthing Wood first, Ida, Nico says. I'd prefer to start with Chamber of Secrets. He doth protest too little, methinks. Okay, Papa, Ida says. I want to start with Animals of Farthing Wood. At this, Nico would be wise to play it with a straight face, but he's unable to conceal this psychological triumph. To him, he has discovered a bona fide superpower, and he balls his fist and pumps his arm just a little. There's a lot at play here. Ida openly dislikes Animals of Farthing Wood, but knows that Nico loves it. She's a sweet soul, and may have chosen it because she loves her brother and she wants him to be happy, but equally she may have grabbed this chance to subtly needle her brother, as Nico has a habit of doing to her, and deny him what he says he wants. There's a fancy name for reverse psychology, strategic self-anticonformity. What Nico is pitching, not reading Animals of Farthing Wood, runs counter to what he really wants to read exactly that book. The reason this can work comes down to what's called reactance, which is essentially when the recipient of this pitch, Ida in this case, feels like they're being pushed into a corner. The recipient's natural counter to this is to do the opposite to what was originally pitched, to reassert their own independence. 
But the ruse of reverse psychology can be flimsy and unreliable, especially if overused. What Nico underestimates here is Ida's powers of observation. Sure, she's younger than him and doesn't yet have some of the book smarts that Nico does, something he likes to lord over her, but as far as reading people goes, Ida may already be a genius. Nico's fist bump doesn't go unnoticed. A few nights later, the psychological games continue. I want to choose tonight, Ida says. Well, it is your turn to choose, I say. Go ahead. As long as we start with Chamber of Secrets, Nico says. Of the three books in our current rotation, this is the one Nico wants to hear the least, since he's already listened to it himself dozens of times. Great, says Ida. Let's do it then. Let's read Chamber of Secrets. Nico does a double take. Wait, he says. Didn't you hear what I said? I said that we should start with Chamber of Secrets, instead of maybe... Animals of Farthing Wood? Yep, done. We'll start with Chamber of Secrets, like you said. Here Ida smiles. Although Ida isn't quite sure exactly how this game is played, she knows she's winning it. Nico strains his face into a smile, his eyes really wide. Great, he says. Perfect. That's exactly what I was hoping for. He elects to play the long game here, to accept the loss so as not to completely expose the conceit. The problem, dear Nico, if you reverse or turn things around enough times, you may end up facing in the same direction you started in. And if you turn too many times, over and over and onward, you may not recognise which direction you're facing in when you stop, because now you're too dizzy. Wear sunscreen or end up like Freddy Krueger. No one likes wearing sunscreen. It's greasy, messy stuff that invites every grain of sand or mote of dust to take up residence on your skin. But in New Zealand at least, it's one of those unfortunate necessities that's also a contradiction. You need to cover up to avoid skin cancer, but you also need access to the sun to power up your body with vitamin D. Tricky. Neither of my kids have really taken to sunscreen, and they've both inherited my translucent white skin, passed down, I believe, from the Scottish Allardyce clan. Nico recoils from sunscreen like he's being coated with acid. His own attempts at coverage end up pretty patchy. Ida doesn't love it, but is at least willing to let me help her apply it evenly. Personally, I've always been pretty good about sunscreen, so I was disappointed when a local dermatologist showed me that I had solar keratoses, patches of dry, damaged cells that are more likely to develop into skin cancer than normal cells. My nose was the most badly affected, which is apparently common, since it sticks out from your face and has thinner skin. Damn this sundial nose, this see-through skin. The sunscreen wasn't enough. There was a solution, however, the dermatologist told me. Photodynamic therapy. This would kill off the damaged precancerous cells and leave the healthy ones. Although it sounded like a good idea in principle, I put it off for nearly a year because it sounded like such an ordeal. Your face goes really red and tender for a few weeks, and you have to treat it like a burn. It also costs money dollars. I finally got around to getting the photodynamic therapy done a couple of weeks ago. I took a Friday off work and went into the local clinic. 
The nurse explained to me that she'd essentially sand my face with a dermal pen, a tool that looked a little like an electric toothbrush but with metal needles that jam back and forth at high speed as it's run over your face, essentially piercing your face with thousands of tiny holes. It wasn't so bad over the fleshier areas, but I could really feel it grinding against the bone of my forehead and the cartilage of my nose. This part is actually sometimes done on its own as a beauty therapy, said the nurse. It's called dry needling. Jesus, I thought. The marketing department was really having a lazy one that day. Next, the nurse painted a solution of aminolivulinic acid on my face, which felt like someone painting acid on a face full of fresh holes. For the final step of the procedure, the nurse took me to a separate room, set up with grids around the wall of what looked like stadium lights up close. The nurse sat me down in a reclining chair, taped my eyelids shut, and put on black goggles intended to block out the light. Under no circumstances are you to take these off, okay? said the nurse. Okay, I said. Not that I would have wanted to. Once the nurse left the room and hit the lights, even with the glasses on and my eyes taped shut, I could still see the light as an inescapable angry red blaze. I sat there and baked in the white light for 30 minutes, listening to Flight of the Concords. Afterwards, the nurse put some cream on my face to soothe what she explained would manifest as bad sunburn. I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror, a little glazed and shiny, a few scratches here and there, a droplet of blood, but nothing too dire so far. It'll get worse before it gets better, said the nurse. The first three days are the worst. By the end of the third day, my face was a uniform scarlet pink, except for my eyes, making me look like I'd been skiing or snowboarding with goggles on, directly into the sun. Several times a day, I had to put this antiseptic, soothing goop on my face, which smelled terrible and made my face seem like a science lab. I quickly swapped it for a more natural cream that the nurse had recommended, which had a lot of sesame in it. Now I smelled like a spring roll. The oily layers spread thick on my face at all times gave the impression that my face was melting. On the fourth day, where my face would crease to smile, the skin started to crack and peel away. From the fifth day onward, the peeling started to spread. I would look down at the keyboard to see pieces of my crumbling face scattered across it. It was insanely itchy, but I wasn't meant to touch the skin. The only way I could get any relief was to make absurdly animated faces to move the skin around so that it could scratch itself. I kept the camera on all my online calls off that week. When the face was looking peak horror movie around day six, that was when my kids started to ask, whoa, Papa, has something happened to your face? The only comfort I had at this point was an assurance that this was how it was meant to go and that in two or three weeks time, I would emerge from this tight, crinkly face chrysalis with much of the sun damage annulled and only the true champion skin left. A wiser creature with ecstatic paws and a heightened suspicion of fine days. As I progressed into the second week of recovery, the skin had mostly shed its outer layers and it was starting to heal. It was very fresh skin. It felt like an electric shock when Nico or Ida would lean in during story time and the hair would brush my face. 
The resulting jolts started to make the kids take even more notice of the melted face and even become a little scared of it because it was now also unpredictable. Papa, why do you smell like food? Ida asked, examining the face and scrunching up her nose. It's weird. I'm now pushing up to the three-week mark, and the face looks nearly normal, save for a bit of a tan line, eyes excluded, and some remaining pink patches. The skin on my forehead and nose does indeed look like it's been grown anew, and Ida commented, You look ten years younger. A platitude that either my partner Vic asked her to say or she heard on TV, but a nice sentiment besides. This may have been the most arduous, costly way possible to ensure my kids wear sunscreen. In future, when my children complain about putting it on, I'll now be able to say, remember my melted face? You don't want that to happen to you, do you? I can picture them now abandoning all protestations and lathering the sunscreen all over their faces. No one volunteers to look like Freddy Krueger. Okay, Google. You told me you could set it to sound like Harry Potter, my son Nico protested. I was wrangling with the menu on the smart clock I got him for his 10th birthday, which came with a voice-activated assistant. Nico meant that he wanted it to sound like Stephen Fry narrating the Harry Potter books, a voice that's been part of the ambient noise of our household for half a decade. We love you, Stephen. Also, thank you, JK. Pretty good story you wrote there. I initially said it to the Australian accent and was unable to reverse that decision. Now, a smart clock is not something I ever imagined having in my house, but now that it's here, we're all a bit taken by the novelty in different ways. I got it for Nico so that he could readily access podcasts, audiobooks and music. He's a real auditory guy. And I'm impressed at the research and development that has gone into making the free-form speech of the virtual assistant sounds so natural, and the wizardry that allows the, the assistant to interpret all kinds of questions, straightforward, garbled, or otherwise. My kids appreciate it for different reasons. Hey Google, you're a poo, says my daughter Ida. That's not very nice, says the Google assistant in a female voice with an Aussie accent. Hey Google, set a timer for two minutes, says Nico. Papa says we need to brush our teeth for longer. Setting a timer for two minutes, says the Google Assistant. One morning, working from home, I could hear the Google Assistant mumbling something from Nico's room, even though both the kids had already gone to school. Oh God, I thought, has it achieved sentience? Is it plotting our demise? I went into the bedroom, wondering what the kids might have said to prompt the Assistant to operate solo. 3,427, 3,428, 3,429. When Nico and Ida came home, I was curious. Hey guys, what did you ask Google to do? I said. Nico started laughing. I told Google to count to 10 million. Things kids say to imply they don't like their dinner and certainly won't be eating it. What is this? Is this what we usually have? There's something different about this. This food looks weird. This food smells weird.
Where does this colour come from? But is this what we're eating? Really? Does this have mushrooms in it? This has chewy bits in it. This has mushy bits in it. This has bits in it. Actually, I may be feeling a bit full. Does this have something spicy in it? Cough, cough, cough. Can I please get another drink of water? And another drink of water. And another. I'm definitely full now. From all the water. What's for pudding? Okay, everyone, that's all for today. As usual, thanks so much for listening. Tune in next time. We'll see you then. Okay, bye.